Assassin Matt Costa and special guest fill-in host tonight, John Brightman, is here because both Matt Moniz and Stephanie Burke are out of the studio. So we brought in John so that uh, he can sit in and hang out and talk with us about the paranormal, which is what we do each and every Saturday night. If you were just listening to the Red Sox game on WBSM, uh, I think the game was over and the post-game show was over, so things didn't click over. We said, hey, we're just going to bring Spooky South Coast Right on to the airwaves. It's not often that a game gets over in time for Spooky South Coast to start on time, so we take it where we can get it. And, uh, yep, see, there we go. Now everything's <laughs> kicking over. <laughs> but we thank you for joining us uh, on WBSM. You can also catch us live on YouTube, on the WB, on the uh, Spooky South Coast YouTube channel, and also on SpookySouthCoast.com. If you want to watch the show as you listen on the radio, we have these cameras all over the studio, and we bring in some graphics and some images and all kinds of stuff. Matt Costa slices and dices over there. That's why he's the silent assassin. And uh, and it's really it's it's a good way to spend a Saturday night, especially tonight where there's been thunderstorms and there's a little bit of a creepy feel in the air. It's it's still too muggy to it, go it out could and do get anything. Interesting. Yeah. So hunker up, grab a blanket, make some popcorn because we're going to be having a fantastic show tonight. We're going to be talking with Steve Ubaney coming up in just a bit. And Steve is the author of the Who Murdered Book series. And if you go to whomurderedbooks.com, you can find some of the other books in the series. But tonight we're going to talk to him about his book, Who Murdered Elvis? Now, a lot of you are out there saying, but Elvis wasn't murdered. Mm. Elvis died 1977, August 16th, 1977, just a few, few days ago was the anniversary. And uh, Elvis died supposedly on the toilet, of a heart attack. That's the story that we've heard. Maybe some of the the rumor and the speculation is that it actually was an overdose and that it was just put out as a heart attack to kind of cover up the fact that uh, it was an overdose. But for the most part, people look at it and say, Elvis died either by doing himself in with his lifestyle or bad genes, or whatever you want to blame it on, but Elvis died. He wasn't murdered. So Steve Ubaney is going to join us to talk about why he can lay out the case to say that the king of rock and roll was actually murdered. And I think if a king is murdered, isn't that assassination? Uh, I, yeah, I believe so. So we'll get into all that with Steve coming up. Uh, now, for those of you who have listened to the show before and, and have listened to my Saturday morning show, you know that I'm a huge Elvis fan. And uh, I would love to be able to play some Elvis music during the show, but we can't because of YouTube copyright restrictions and all that kind of stuff. But just know that throughout the show, I'll be I'll be humming the songs in my head. 
You don't want to hear me sing. I'm no, uh, I'm no Cody Despians and Dustin Parry when it comes to uh, singing Elvis songs. Those, they're those they're amazing when they travel. They in the car singing the whole time. It's pretty cute, funny. Yeah, you should follow them on social media if you don't, and you can uh, you can catch some of their Elvis performances. But we'll talk with Steve about why he thinks Elvis was murdered. We'll also talk with him about some of the other books in the Who Murdered series. Uh, that would be Who Murdered FDR, uh, Who Murdered Princess Diana, Who Murdered JFK, and uh, he has a new one coming out, Who Murdered Tesla. So uh, we can we can certainly delve into some of that as well. But in uh, talking with Steve last night. He said, you know, we're going to need the entire time to talk just about Elvis with all the stuff, all the information that he's collected. So uh, if certainly if we don't get to some of those other ones, we can have him back on in the future to talk about those. Speaking of the future, I want to let everybody know about something exciting that's coming up later on this week. For those of you who listen to the show on WBSM or on SpookySouthCoast.com or through podcasts, uh, you may not be aware that we rebroadcast the show every week on the Dark Matter Digital Network which was founded by Art Bell and Keith Rowland a few years ago, uh, basically to be the home of Midnight in the Desert, which was Art Bell's online show that he started after his Sirius XM deal uh, didn't work out the way that they had thought that it would. So they started the digital, uh, the Dark Matter Digital Network so that they could have the Midnight in the Desert show air on the Internet, but also to grab other shows that they f- thought fit into the mold of what Art Bell started with Coast to Coast AM. And so we were really honored when they started that they reached out to us and included Spooky South Coast with that lineup of programming. And we've been on Dark Matter pretty much since day one, and we rebroadcast, I think it's on Tuesdays, it's 7.30 Eastern Time, and the Midnight in the Desert show airs live every weeknight. When Art Bell stepped down... He named his producer, Heather Wade, as the fill-in host, uh, as the, uh, I'm sorry, as the, uh, the new host. And so she took over the program. And then when Art died a couple of months ago, some things happened. And, uh, and Heather stepped away from the show. And Dave Schrader was brought in as the new host of Midnight in the Desert. He's been doing a fantastic job every night kind of taking the show in all kinds of different directions, but staying true to the, to the idea and to the mindset of Art Bell. So Dave's going to be out doing some events coming up. And uh, and basically when Dave can't fill in, uh, when Dave can't do the show, Tim Dennis is co-host from Darkness Radio. He's going to fill in. But when the two of them have things together, you know, I'm kind of the next guy off the bench. So tonight, uh, this week on Thursday and Friday nights, I'll be filling in on Midnight in the Desert. So if you have not subscribed to that program, of course, you can listen live at MidnightInTheDesert.com and on the Dark Matter Digital Network. You can listen for free when the show is live. But if you want to hear the podcast later on, if you want to be able to hear the re- you know, the recorded version of the show and all the other great shows that they have, you just have to pay $5 a month. And you can subscribe to the Dark Matter Digital Network and you can get the show pretty much right after it's it's on the air. So I uh, highly recommend it for any of you Spooky South Coast podcast fans if you want to check out what we're going to be doing. So we're going to be talking about a couple of different topics this weekend. I I can't really give away the guest's information yet because it hasn't been announced, uh, but we'll have some very interesting shows, and they're three-hour shows. Really? So you're going to hear me talk for three hours. If you thought two hours was painful (laughs) to get through, wait until you hear me for two, three hours. See, I'm already screwing up. So I promise more fun like that coming up 
on Midnight in the Desert this Thursday and Friday. And uh, then also uh, I'll be filling in in October as well. So there's a few days in October that I'll be filling in while uh, Dave and Tim are doing some other things. So I actually I know what they're going to be doing, and I'm kind of jealous of what they're going to be doing. <laughs> You know where they're going to be in October? No, they're they're on the Jericho cruise. Oh, they they're going to that. Yes, they're they're going to be doing their show from the uh, the 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 what's the True Crime Tuesday show that they do? Oh. Like they have their they're kind of like they've kind of gone with a, a podcast on the air type show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's they'll be doing that live from the Jericho cruise. So I'm Very a little nice. jealous about that. I'm hoping that at some point, depending on you know what kind of uh, what kind of signal they have, if maybe at some point while I'm sitting in, I guess, my home studio doing the Midnight in the Desert show, maybe Dave and Tim and call Chris Jericho will call in. So That would be awesome. Yeah, we'll see. I was trying to go to that. I wanted to go, too, but then when Dave asked me to fill in, I said, well, I'll, I'll do that instead. Sure. Well, I was trying to get talent on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's nobody more talented than me, John, so... But uh, we will uh, we will certainly keep you up to date with all that information when that comes up as well. So it's just a different you know it's a different audience, a different a chance to talk to some different people to kind of give them a taste of what we do on Spooky South Coast, but at the same time, you know, keeping with what they've been building over there with Midnight in the Desert. So basically, it'll be the same thing as this. We'll just we'll just won't talk about snacks nearly as much on that show. That's no, that can't happen. <laughs> I know, and I I don't know how I'm going to get through a three hour show without talking about snacks. But it's probably going to happen. There's, there's probably going to be some mention of, of some sort of be. food. Because I'm going to have snacks with me for the show. Well, you'd three be in hours. your house. Can't go three hours without yeah. having a little handful of Swedish fish or something. Uh, so, again, that'll be Thursday and Friday of this week. And I do believe that if everything works out, uh, I can give you one of the general topics that we'll be talking about even though I don't think that the guest has been nailed down for sure yet, but we will be revisiting Lilydale. For those of you who heard really? the episode that we did of Spooky South Coast, we were in Lilydale, and, and it seemed like we were just kind of scraping the surface of some of the things that we could talk about. We're going to get way more in-depth with it. So this should be a, a real opportunity to find out the inner workings of Lilydale. I mean, a community of mediums is a very interesting thing, even if you don't believe in mediums. It's very interesting to kind of break it all down and figure out how does that work? Yeah. Like how do you run like you you do a lot of events and conventions and all that stuff. You've seen the egos that are involved <laughs> with mediums. Yes. Probably more so than anybody else that uh, is in the paranormal world. So when that happens, when those egos are there and and, and I can tell you from having spent a weekend in Lilydale at least that uh, I didn't see a lot of that going on. But still, I mean, there's, there's it has to go on. It's just not shown, probably. Right. I mean, if you if you went to, let's just say there's a, a town where uh, everybody in town is a dentist, and you need to go see a dentist. Like, how do you know who you're going to walk in and go see in this town full of dentists? And there has to be some competitiveness amongst those dentists to get the people to come in, but. A lot of that doesn't exist in Lilydale, at least not on the surface. So we'll find out if maybe there's there's some ego balancing going on. Because in addition to, to having all these registered mediums that have to pass a test in order to even be allowed to operate in Lilydale. Really? Oh, yeah. No, you can't, you can't just move to Lilydale. I did not know that. 
you can't just say, hey, I think I'm going to go be a medium and, and move into Lilydale. There's, first of all, there's requirements. You have to be a member of the spiritualist church for at least a year. And then you have to apply to be allowed to live there. This isn't even to work as a medium there. This is just to live there. You have to put in paperwork to formally request being allowed to even buy a house there. And then when they approve that, you buy your house and then you can go and live there. And if you want to work as a medium in Lilydale, you have to be registered by the Lilydale Assembly to be a medium and you have to pass all of their certifications. So the town itself actually takes, per se, I guess, requests to buy a house in the town because it's, you're a medium. It's not so much a town. It's it's a camp. So it's a village within... On the property. Yes. Okay, so if okay, you wanna, I get if, that. Yeah, so they basically okay. kind of run the whole thing. Okay. But they run it like it's so, a little So it would be somebody, if they no. had 300, 400 acres and then let people build houses on their land and it, then run it like their own little separate town. It was more like back in the 1800s, they all just went to this place by the lake and set up shop. And then over time, it became, um, you know, they, they kind of had to make sure that they kept things restrictive so that not just anybody could come in and hang a shingle and start doing readings. Part of the deal with being a medium in Lilydale is, you know, you can operate as a as a medium taking clients into your home or however you have it set up where you do the readings, but as part of the deal, you have to go out and be part of the public services as well. So you see some of these world-famous mediums that, that live and work in Lilydale, Lisa Williams, Gerda Lestock, and Gaiman, you see them all working out of Lilydale, but at the same time, you might go and spend the day, just pay your $24 to get into the gate and go to a service at the Forest Temple or Inspiration Stump, and one of those mediums might actually just come out and do the like the gallery that they do because that's part of the deal. So you can't, you know, if you're going to hang your shingle and, and, and take take appointments, part of that is you have to give back and do some of these, these public um for lack of a better term, they're like gallery readings. Okay. It's a it's a service they call it. So you go to a service at Inspiration Stump. You go to a service at the at the Forest Temple. You go to a service at the uh, the um, the Auditorium Building. So all these different buildings, all these different places where they have stuff going on. There's always a medium there. Provide like I went to a I went to a basic spiritualist church service, and so the uh, the pastor gets up and. You know, there, there's, they sing hymns and he gives a, a reading and they had a special guest, uh, who gave, uh, you know, a sermon. And then after that's over, there's a medium on stage who just starts connecting with the people who were there and with their loved ones who were gone. So it's a really, it's, it's a very, very interesting place and, and you really can't understand it that until is, you go there and experience it for yourself. That is interesting. And it's a great place to go and visit. Like I would not be, surprised if you know people that are that watch the episode of the show that we did or listen to the to the episode that we'll do of uh, midnight in the desert if they say hey that just sounds like a great place to go and take a vacation i don't even care about getting a reading or any of that kind of stuff i just want to go and i want to see if i can you know just swim in the in the water they say even just swimming in the lake there has like healing and cleansing powers really yeah, so it's uh, it's it's certainly worth checking out if you're looking for a, a, an interesting vacation destination. Basically, just fly to Buffalo, drive an hour outside of Buffalo, you'll be in Lilydale. I highly recommend uh, the garlic soup. 
The colic soup. Yes, uh, it. Uh, I can't remember the name. It uh, starts with a D. The name of the uh, the restaurant, but it's it's right there. Like you can't miss it. It's right next to the hotel, and uh, the garlic soup is fantastic. All right, I think we have a caller on the line. We can uh, take this call real fast before we connect with our guest, Steve Ubaney. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Well, I, nope, they, they're, they're not there. So uh, if anybody does want to call in during the course of the show, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420 are the numbers to do so. We also uh, can take your calls and I mean, take your questions. I mean, uh, in the chat room at Spooky South Coast's mm-hmm. YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> I'm just reading some of the stuff that's in there. You know, you don't read the chat room for a few minutes, and then you turn and you look at it, and then something catches your eye, and it's almost always uh, something that you probably shouldn't read on the air because we are on the actual radio, so I can't say some of the stuff. <laughs> Have you have you gotten in? I just okay, got so in. So you see some of the things. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what you're missing out on if you're not actually watching Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, there is also, as I mentioned, uh, we have a number of things coming up. If you want to come and, and experience the paranormal for yourself, uh, we have some events coming up. We have in October, we'll be in... North Andover at the Parson Barnard House for the exoneration. That's on October 13th, where we are. It's the 300th anniversary of the death of Reverend Thomas Barnard. We're, we're actually trying to clear his name. He's accused of being one of the accusers in the Salem Witch Trials, but we're actually trying to prove that he was not an accuser and actually trying to help. So we'll be doing that on October 13th. Also, October 20th, we'll be at Edaville for an eerie night at Edaville. Always one of our most requested places to go back to because when do you get to have after-hours access to an amusement park? With You get to go and investigate the Midway. And, and all these rides, by the way, that are at Edaville have all come in from other amusement parks that have shut down that have their own long-storied history. I was going to ask, like, are the rides going or can you some of them go during? No, the the rides are off. Uh, there's there's really nobody like there that could operate them. So okay, uh, the rides are off. But so like the carousel there came from Gaslight Village in New York, which is uh, on Lake George, mm-hmm. which has now been turned into a Six Flags. So when you know Six Flags took over, there was two parks there. There was Gaslight Village and there was the Great Escape. They were kind of like right across the street from each other. And when Great Escape became a Six Flags, it kind of took over everything. So they sold off some of the rides. So Edaville ended up with the Gaslight Village Carousel. Now, Gaslight Village had a long history of having ghostly activity happening. So maybe some of that's attached to the carousel. Could be. Uh, the, there's, and all those other rides came from other places that could have their own attachments to them. But just that land already had Native American ghost stories from it. Mm-hmm. Then you have, I can't talk about it publicly on the air because the the family gets upset and you know they don't they don't want us to talk about it, but the founder of Edaville, there's a story there, mm-hmm. and uh, so there's a lot of stuff that's gone on in that location over the years. And when we've investigated, we have access to the suicide house, which is where three different people have committed suicide over the years in that house on the top of the hill. And this might be the last year we get to investigate that because they're going to tear it down. Really? Because they're building a new they're building new rides, and so they're going to be using that space. They're going to be getting rid of that house. 
So this might every year that we go, it's like this might be the year that's the end of it, and it's looking more and more like this will be the last year we can investigate the suicide house as part of this event. And then we also have uh, the access to the museum building, which you get to investigate all four floors, including the basement, which is where there was uh, a tragedy that happened. And you also get to investigate the attic, which is where all the original Edaville decorations are. That's what somebody in the chat room was just saying. Scott Beeman was just saying that you get to do the basement and the attic. Yeah, to be in the attic and to see all of those old Edaville, uh, all of those old uh, Christmas time stuff, and and uh, even when they had some summer stuff. But you know, if you remember seeing like the the mice that were the from the night, which was the night before Christmas, yep. they used to have those mice out in a display, animatronic. Versions of those mice, you know. Have you ever you've seen that oh, Christmas yeah. special, right? Yep. So they had like animatronic versions of it. They don't put those out anymore because nobody they don't really run that special anymore. So nobody recognizes the characters, but they they're up in the attic, so you get to see them. And you know, the, I'm still peeking around up there trying to find Santa Claus in the bathtub, but they they tell me he's not up there. That was like one of the most famous Edaville stops when I was a kid. Really? At the end of that row of all the animatronic stuff in the in the little little uh, buildings. They had Santa Claus sitting in the bathtub, like kind of scrubbing his back and talking to you, like, ho, 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 I'm coming to see you on Christmas. I have not been there since, honest to God, it must be, I was probably six or seven, I think, the last time I was there. Well, it's it's certainly changed since you were there. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, there's There's been a lot of uh, upgrades. They're putting a lot of money into the park, but it still does have that, you know, small town, amusement park, family adventure kind of feel to it so you can check that out with us on october 20th and then last weekend we announced a new event it'll be happening november i believe 16th uh, it is weird uh, wicked worcester we're calling it and it's at the bull mansion have you ever been to the bull mansion no i have not but you spent a lot of time out in worcester yes and i've heard of it and and the, the what's great about this place is uh, a lot of people have said you know i don't know if i want to go to worcester on a saturday night but uh it's not that bad it has its own parking lot so you'll be able to park right there. And it's it's a mansion. It's le- legitimately a mansion, a gothic stick-style mansion uh, that was built in the late 1800s. And we will be investigating the entire building. Now, there is there is a bistro on the first floor that, you know, we won't have access to that until it closes. But that bistro is going to be who's making us dinner, too. So we should have some uh, some pretty good food and uh, some great time investigating Bull Mansion the first time anybody has ever investigated this mansion and what's funny about it is it was built for the you know the Smith and Wesson yep. you know company gun company yep. that they're from Springfield area right i yep. think so the this was built for the daughter of Wesson when she was getting married to a man named George Bull and so this was built as like their wedding gift now, all I can think of when I think about that is there's another place that has a paranormal history that's also kind of tied into the... I was just going to... So if you if you know the story of the Winchester Mystery yeah. House, uh, Sarah Winchester was the heir to the Winchester gun fortune, mm-hmm. and and some people say that she was plagued by the spirits of people who were killed by the Winchester rifle, which, uh, you know, chances are in the 1800s, it was most people that mm-hmm. were killed were killed by... It was like that ubiquitous. They were everywhere. And so... The other gun that was ubiquitous and everywhere, well, besides Colt, but it also was the Smith & Wesson. So, you know, maybe maybe that same kind of stuff is going on. I can't say for sure, but uh, we will find out, and we will see if we can stir up some paranormal activity, or at least we'll stir up some pretty good 
food because they're promising promising us some good pizza. Have did you get to see that movie, The Winchester? Yeah. I have not seen it. Is it any good? I liked it only because it did tell a lot of the story the way you just explained it, and I don't want to give it away to you or to people in the chat room or that's listening. Um, I did like it. Some, you know, people have said, ah, it wasn't that good, but I think the story behind it was very well played out and explained a lot of the history of the story of what happened to her. So you definitely should check it out. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to send Matt, if I can uh, pull it all up, I'm going to send him the number to call our guest and see if we can't get him on the phone because uh, it seems like he is not connecting through the Skype, which is okay. We could always do it over the phone as well, but uh, we will be talking tonight about who murdered Elvis. And if you thought that Elvis was the victim of a heart attack or maybe even an overdose, or maybe you thought that he was still alive, which I know some people in the chat room were already saying, like, hey, how can you talk about who murdered Elvis when I just saw him at Burger King? You know, there's, there's pictures floating around, and I've seen, and you know, I'm I'm not the huge conspiracy person, but there are pictures that are floating around out there that people supposedly took, and it wasn't that long ago, and it looks like him very, very... Now, let's not the, the the kind of the the issue with this is a lot of people wanted to look like him. Mm. I mean, there were a lot of people that kind of styled themselves after Elvis, especially after his death. So if that's the case, you know, you're going to have a lot of kind of just like there's a lot of Elvis impersonators out yes. there. There's people who just kind of want to adopt that style. I remember when I was a kid, there was a I used my dad used to uh, he had a table at a flea market selling auto parts. And so we would go to the flea market every Sunday, and, and my dad would sell stuff, and we would help and hang out and basically get to kind of run around the flea market, which is awesome when you're a kid. You know, you get to have donuts for breakfast and fried dough for lunch, and it's great. But I was always kind of weirded out because at one table, there was a guy, I don't even remember what he sold, but he looked like Elvis. He had a pompadour. He had sideburns. He was heavy. And... I was convinced that it was Elvis, that Elvis did not die, that he had faked his own death, and now is selling auto, uh, selling whatever he was selling at the flea market that my dad sold auto parts. It's funny. Your description sounds just like my client, Mark Boone Jr., during uh, Have You Seen? No. He, he, he dresses up and plays Elvis throughout the whole TV show of, uh, of Sons of Anarchy. Oh, okay. I, I, <laughs> and I, I stopped watching it. Ju- the first that season. is just perfect description of him. That's why I'm laughing. Well, so... I remember. Well, wait. He's is he the the guy that was in the gang? Yeah. The, the that was his side job. They called him Bobby Elvis. That yeah. Guy? Yeah, I've seen, yeah. Yeah. I've seen that guy then. Yeah. 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 So, but uh, no, this guy did not look like that. This guy looked a little bit uh, meaner, if that makes sense. Meaner than a guy that played a biker. But uh, he, like, I never really wanted to approach him because I was convinced that it was the real Elvis. Not even thinking to myself, like, why would Elvis? work at a flea market like even if he faked his own death yeah. and didn't have yeah. access to the entire elvis fortune he'd still have enough yeah that he wouldn't have to work in a flea market like he could maybe go shop in one and that but would be i don't more, think he would be setting up the table selling stuff yeah and i don't think he would like you know feel the need to uh 
to to have to pick that particular flea market either. Like, why would out of all the places he could go, like the Raynham Flea Market, which back then was called Country Place, you know, like why would he feel the need to to go there? You following the chat room at all? No, I'm uh, trying to see what's going on with uh, with getting the guests, but we do have a, a call on the line that I can take while we're getting trying to get the guests on the air. Oh, hello. I guess we don't. What Elvis song was that person just humming? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, if you do want to call in during the show, 508-996-0500. I don't know if... Um, it's, it, I think it's Elvis's spirit that keeps trying to yeah, call in. I, I, you know, I I just know Elvis was more of a, a fan of using the mail, you know, because of Return to Sender. I don't know if uh, or Return to Sender for those of you who are the Cherub, huh? Huh? huh. Uh, like three people get that joke, but that's uh, all right. We got him on the line. It looks like <laughs> there's somebody on the line. We we're still uh, trying to connect to uh, via the Skype. Go ahead. You do what you need to do. I'll just keep talking. We were talking about uh, whether or not is that where I bring them up here. Nope, we have no answer on that. So we'll we'll try that again in a moment. This is a fascinating radio for those that are listening. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you? Hey, how you doing? We're a spooktacular. How about yourself? All right, pretty good. Are you ever going to have any uh, guests on the uh, uh, Crystal Skull thing? We've we've done a few Crystal Skull episodes. Yeah, I'm interested in that. Yeah, we'll see if we can uh, if we can bring somebody back on. Uh, uh, L. A. Marzulli, I think, is a good guest to bring on. Talk about the Crystal Skulls. Yeah, uh, we I'm, had Lloyd Pye on in the past, and yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in that. I, I find that uh, pretty interesting, amazing, now, actually. Have you ever been around a crystal skull? I I have. Well, I'm a I'm a radio ham, so I understand the uh, oscillation of a crystal in general. Mm-hmm. So it 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 amazes me that these things oscillate on a particular frequency and and influence, for that matter. And I I mean I never put much stock in it. You know, when I heard some of the stories, until I started actually being around crystal skulls. Yeah. And we had. Uh, we actually had uh, a guest that brought in her crystal skulls collection. Whatever. Yeah, and yeah. she laid them all out here. Yeah. So. Yeah, she said. I, I think I did listen on that, and she said that you know she had to throw a blanket over these things or whatever because they were, you know, they were transmitting. I guess. <laughs> you know, and driving her uh, crazy for whatever reason, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I just I just did an intern move, Matt. I didn't have the caller going up to the video. Uh, See what happens when you're not there to to remind me. But I could hear your caller, so that's all that matters. But uh, no, we will definitely try to uh, we'll definitely try to have a Crystal Skull episode coming right. up sometime soon. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good show. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. And uh, that's that's my bad because I pulled it down and I didn't put it back up again. I feel so inadequate. We still having trouble. Uh, Okay. So you want to, uh, where are we? Do we connect already? Do I need to connect again? Okay. We'll fix this in post. This is what we always say. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Steve. Are you with us? 
Hello, Steve. Are you with us? I can hear you. I'm hearing a little bit of a, 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 a feedback. Can you hear me? I'm hearing a little bit of a, a, a feedback. I'm not hearing anything at my end. How, how about now? Can you hear me okay? I hear you a little bit, a little bit better. It's still a little, little wonky. Okay, I'll try. I'll try and do the best that I can. Let me see if uh, it's not my fault that I'm hearing myself. Of course, it is. All right, that might be a little bit better now. That does sound better. Okay. Am I am I coming through okay? You're on. You're, you sound great. It's okay. uh, it's whether or not uh, I can keep up my end of the bargain. So. <laughs> Steve Ubaney is an American suspense author who reinvestigates the deaths of famous people using newly discovered facts that debunk historical claims. His books deduce that some of history's most famous deaths were actually murders. And as I mentioned, he has a whole series that you can check out for yourself at whomurderedbooks.com. And maybe we'll get into some of that stuff a little bit later on. But tonight, we have him on to talk about who murdered Elvis. Because, Steve, as, as we were talking last night, you, you know, you're just getting requests like crazy. Because not only were you just on Coast to Coast AM, but we also just had the, what, 41st anniversary of the King's passing. So everybody's thinking Elvis these days. Yeah, it's it's really popular at the moment. It's uh, It's... <laughs> The phone's been ringing off the wall. It's really been a, it's been an amazing time. So when you started looking into this as a, a potential, a potential, like when did things start to, to shape up to you that things didn't look right with Elvis's murder? Did you uh, with Elvis's death? Did you always kind of feel that was the case? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was raised an Elvis fan, so I knew more about this guy. I think by the time I was. 10 years old than most people did my mother was just in love with this guy and still is and i never believed what they said when he uh when he died and the story continued to change first it was a heart attack and then uh, later on it was drugs and later on it was suicide and you know i mean the story just continued to flip flop and you know so it started out i did start out to write a book about him or anybody else it, it just started out casual reading i got to get to the bottom of this because it doesn't make any sense i was watching the 30th anniversary of his death and i'm watching them interview the people who allegedly found the body and i understand as the passage of time goes some things are not going to be the same but you know they were getting some things garbled that garbled that were pretty big things like where the body was found um uh, yeah so after that, I started to really dig into it, and um, my investigation into it really, uh, it was five years. And I, I uncovered some things that really shocked me. So um, when I finally figured out that the man was, you know, fell into foul play when he was murdered, and I finally got it through my head, I walked around with this really, like, dark cloud over my head for months. And I was talking to my friends about it, and they said, you know, you're going to have to write this book. Everybody's got to know what you uncovered. And I said, they're going to think I'm out of my mind. And he said, well, let them. But you're going to have to tell everybody what you uncovered. I think that, I think if Elvis was alive, I think he'd like the truth to be told. So that's kind of the backstory as to how this, this whole thing happened. Um, it's, it's a lot. I mean, I've got, uh, the first one came out, Who Murdered Elvis came out in 2013. And I just came out with the five-year anniversary of it uh, a couple of months ago. And that's everything that's happened after the last book was printed. The story continues to evolve. So I've definitely got my hands full. Well, I mean, that's what I th I thought, you know, growing up and, and hearing. Originally, you know, you, you always hear the, the, the story that Elvis died on the toilet. That's kind of what everybody discusses when they talk about his death. But I always assume that the heart attack story 
was a cover up for the fact that it was an overdose and that, you know, that's just what they wanted to let the public know because at the time nobody really knew that Elvis had had addictions. It was something that was kind of kept under wraps and they didn't really talk about publicly. I mean, now people talk about it, but back then I could understand like wanting to have that that public story of it being a heart attack, which was very plausible considering his lifestyle, but also at the same time, you know, for you to say, well, that that kind of made it not sit right with you, you know, I, I'm just looking at it and taking it at face value to say, okay, the heart attack was to cover up the overdose, but you're saying that even that story didn't seem to make sense to you. No, the uh, I think, like I said, what's in legend and lore and what really happened at the autopsy table was entirely two different things. Um, I, I had a chance to meet through my elongated investigation into this a fellow named Dan Warlick who was uh, the who was at the autopsy, and he was also at Graceland. He investigated the crime scene, and you know the rubber started to meet the road. And I started to put the lore aside, and I started to actually uh, dig into, you know, the facts of the case. And this is interesting because, you know, I'm not the only person who thinks that this guy was murdered. Um, and the the evidence is really kind of in my favor. Elvis Presley's father, the first words out of his mouth, oh, my God, they've murdered my son. Wow. Said right in, right in front of Dan Warlick. He was so convinced that El- his Elvis was murdered that he hired two private investigators to solve the murder, and they were making pretty good progress, but Vernon died two years after Elvis, and the case kind of went cold. So my book actually picks up where Vernon's book left off. So Vernon knew that Elvis was uh, was murdered. Um, Susanna Lee, one of his co-stars on Paradise Hawaiian Style, uh, she came right out and said, in 1978, she went on television and said, when are we going to solve the murder of Elvis Presley? Uh, you know, Dr. Nicopolis has, if you go to my website, if you go to whomurderedbooks.com and you go to the Elvis pages and you go down to the bottom, there's a video clip there where Dr. Nicopolis, his doctor, says Elvis was murdered. So, I mean, it's incredible. I started to dig into this and I started to uncover some pretty telling information that there was foul play going on. And then when I uncovered what everyone else said, it just blew my mind. Dick Grob. Um, Elvis is chief of security. He has a book out, The Elvis Conspiracy. I'm not sure if it's in print or not. It's a hell of a book. And um, he came right out and said that he was murdered. I think he was one of the first ones to come out with a book to that. So um, as much as I'd love to say that I have done all the research in this, I can't do that. There was 30 years of research into this before I got into it. But I think that what I've done is finish it and right. put a logical conclusion on it, and really expand the body of work that has been done. Well, I mean, these are folks that uh, that were around Elvis. These were people that knew not only him, but knew the circles that he traveled in. And that is what I think is the, the fascinating part of this story, is we're not talking about you know a, a John Lennon situation uh, where it's just some crazed fan that got involved in it. We're, we're talking about there was a, a there was a conspiracy here. There was there was something that went beyond just uh, somebody wanting to murder Elvis. This was something that was that that stood for something bigger. Yeah, in 1970, so you're exactly right. Um, you never argue with a man when he's right, and you're right. <laughs> um, in 1977, there were more people who wanted Elvis Presley dead than alive. 
Um, he had changed his will. There were people working on the inside who were extraordinarily upset with him. Um, he started to uh, he started to fire some of the people around him. There was there was girlfriend changes going on, and you know, March of seventy seven. You know, this guy is in Hawaii with a handful of his closest friends, and he said, hey, I'm going to start making some changes. So he started to start losing weight. He started to get in better health, and he announced that there were some changes coming. And the changes played a pretty good part in what happened to him. Um, it's really interesting. Um, his His manager was highly involved with the mob, and Elvis Presley got a federal narcotics badge from Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. These two are not going to end well. This situation cannot end well. <laughs> so uh, it, it's very interesting to know that the backstory on Colonel Parker, um, Elvis's manager, is uh, it's just incredible when you think about it. He was managing other people before he got to Elvis. And I'll give you a little list of here. Uh, Minnie Pearl, Hank Snow, Gene Austin, June Carter Cash, of course, was Johnny went on to be Johnny Cash's wife. Um, Roy Acuff. And the biggest one that he had was uh, Eddie Arnold. And he had been playing these... Uh, you don't book anyone, any one of these acts in Las Vegas back in the day unless you deal with the owners. And the owners of those those uh, those casinos were all mob back then. Two in particular, uh, Milton Prell was out of the um, out of the Detroit mob. He was out of that syndicate, and he owned the Sahara, the Aladdin, and the Mint. And you don't book anybody in those hotels or in those casinos to perform unless you're dancing with the devil. Um, so he became very good friends with uh, with Milton Prell. Uh, another one was Mo Dallitz. Mo Dallitz was uh, of the Cleveland Syndicate, and he owned the Stardust and the Desert Inn. And his real job in Vegas was to keep, uh, you know, to be there to be an ally to Meyer Lansky and Jimmy Hoffa. So here we have Colonel Parker befriending all of these people and to book the previous, you know, people to Elvis. And of course, Elvis Presley comes along. And we have no problem putting him in Vegas, do we? Um, sell out crowd, sell out crowd. You've got to dance with those people if you're going to do it. So, um, Colonel Parker's a very mysterious guy. A lot of investigation into his life. Um, well, he I'm was. Not, I was saying the legend of Colonel Parker is that he, you know, he wasn't really uh, a successful manager before Elvis. That he was kind of just, you know, keeping himself afloat with some of these acts. And he, it's not like he was this. Uh, uh, Svengali character that Elvis was drawn into, he was a guy that was uh, a hustler more than anything. Yeah, he was no mystical star maker, that's for sure. Elvis made the colonel, but colonel didn't make Elvis. And I think that Bozo the Clown could have uh, could have managed Elvis Presley. He right. was, you know, I mean, of course, when you have you know the mob element who's pulling all the strings for you behind you, I mean, that certainly helps. Um, but Colonel Parker was not his name. He wasn't a colonel. His name was not Tom Parker. Uh, it, it's the the backstory into this guy is just it's absolutely incredible. Um, he was born in the Netherlands, and his real name was Andreas Van Koo. And he 
was born into a large family, was fascinated with circuses. He came up through the circus ranks and he learned how to pitch. And, you know, he started out just being a water boy and then he started, uh, he began to uh, come of age in the circus and, you know, he grew up there and he was standing shoulder to shoulder with the principals of the, of the circus. So he really learned how to pitch and he always wanted to get to America. He was saving him his money and he was working at the shipping docks. And um, on May 17th, 1929, something very strange happened. Um, this is when Andreas Van Coop died in the Netherlands and Colonel Tom Parker was born in America. Oh. He bludgeoned a woman to death in, um, in the Netherlands and he left all of his belongings and everything and he still weighed on a ship coming to America. Got to America, went into the military, and while he was in the military, went AWOL, came back, they put him in a solitary confinement, and he came out of solitary confinement, a mental patient. So they discharged this wandering, murdering mental patient uh, in this country, and he takes the name of his commanding officer, Tom Parker. That's where this whole thing came from. So he was not a colonel, and he added the colonel there to give him some some weight. Um, the man was a I can tell you this, he was an absolute genius. Uh, every single person I talked to who knew Elvis, and I, I talked to quite a few of them now, um, said that talking to the colonel was like talking to an encyclopedia. I mean, the man was just an incredible genius as far as a few things. He was a con artist, and he was good at it. But So here we have this person wandering America with an alias who is a mental patient and a murderer. And next thing you know, he's learning how to pitch acts, you know, like uh, Eddie Arnold. And Eddie Arnold and the colonel ended badly. He was uh, he coined Eddie Arnold the king of country music, coined Elvis Presley the king of rock and roll. Um, a lot of repeats there, but I won't go into that. I'll save that for the book. Uh <laughs> It's just, it's incredible, really, when you look at the backstory. There's a tremendous book out there that everyone should get, and it's written by Alana Nash, who I don't know, by the way. I would like to meet her sometime, and it's entitled The Colonel, and she goes, she delves far into this person. Um, and it's, it's, it's a great resource if anybody out there is interested. That's, uh, there's a couple books that I can recommend. So, Colonel Parker is all of these horrific things, and now he has mob ties. So, here we go into Elvis. Um, he's now managing Elvis, and he's basically a father figure to Elvis. Right, yeah. And um, he, Elvis was, during his career, you know, they had some rocky times, and um, offers were pouring in from around the world. They offered Elvis... I think fifty million dollars to uh, perform at, at the uh, at the pyramids of Giza, and Colonel Parker kept turning them down and turning them down because he could, they, no one knew until after his death that he was a legal alien in this country. He couldn't get a passport. So I mean, it's you have all of this mob element all around Elvis Presley. His his wedding, for example. Okay, Mo Dallitz was one of the people who funded most of Elvis's movies, and Mo Dallitz was one of the people who started Frank Sinatra in his career. Okay, I mean these guys are as big as they possibly could be. Here we have Elvis Presley's wedding, 
plane was supplied by by Frank Sinatra. They fly out and they where, where do they have the wedding? The Aladdin Hotel, Milton Prowl's Hotel. I mean, this guy couldn't. He was just totally surrounded by the mob. So he does what any person in that situation would do. He gets a federal narcotics badge. <laughs> it's it's laughable, really. Uh, and these two worlds just didn't they didn't collide in a good way. Um, well, I mean, I think the the question with that then is how blind to all of this was Elvis. I mean, understandably, in the early days, he probably didn't see a lot of this stuff, but. Uh, you know, he must have been at least somewhat savvy to what was going on. At some point, he must have, you know, wisened up to what the colonel was all about. Uh, to a point, but I don't think that anyone, I mean, this is leaking out decades and decades after all these people have been dead. So he may, he may have known a little bit about it. I don't think he knew as much as, he certainly didn't know as much as I know about it, or you guys would know now. Uh, he knew that those were very influential people in Vegas, and he kind of left it there. Um, he didn't know probably how influential they were, but you know it's 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 very interesting. Elvis was not a stupid man. This was a very smart guy, um, avid reader, uh, very sharp. But you can only learn what's been presented to you, right? And I think that that was tightly held. So Elvis was kind of kept in a velvet jail, uh, golden handcuffs. Um, the colonel kind of kept him on a leash. Well, I mean, yeah, we always kind of hear that, you know, that was kind of the way that Elvis had to live, but we just, the, you make the assumption that that's because of the, the level of stardom that he had and, and the fact that, you know, we're talking about a time when the the biggest acts in the world were looked upon quite differently than they are now. You know, there was a, there was a mystique around uh, the Beatles. There was a mystique around Elvis. There was a mystique because they weren't. On, there was no internet. There was no social media to to be able to learn about all these people. You saw them on TV once in a while. You heard them on the radio. You bought their records. You read some magazines, but that was pretty much all you knew about them. So it's it's safe to assume that Elvis couldn't live a regular normal life anyway. So I always just made the assumption that that's why he kind of lived reclusively, especially in those Vegas years. I didn't realize that it was because he was being so micromanaged and, and handled in that fashion. Well, Elvis was different probably than, you know, anybody who doesn't understand the cultural and musical and um, societal impact of Elvis Presley needs to do their homework. Elvis was a lot different. Um, you know, before Elvis, kids just listened to what their parents listened to. Mm-hmm. Kids had no identity. Uh, you know, they were sitting around listening to Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with their parents, you know. So Elvis comes of age with television in 55. He has that rocket ride to fame in 56. And all of a sudden, portable record players come out. So all of a sudden, businesses realize that they can market to kids because they finally have their own music. Um, you know, I mean, somebody had to pierce the veil. Without Elvis Presley, there would be no black artists. There would be no Motown. There'd be no Michael Jackson, no Jackson 5. You know, I mean, he was important for so many reasons, which speaks right back to what you were saying about the mystique. Um, yeah, it's there was a mystique around him. Uh, he also had his gang of guys around him, and to, uh, you know, nicknamed the Memphis Mafia, not to be confused with the real mafia, because they weren't. It was just a nickname. Nothing got into Elvis. Nothing got out from Elvis. So, you know, he was he was sheltered in a lot of in an awful lot of ways. He really was. Um, Colonel Parker was smart in a certain sense because you weren't getting Elvis Presley on The Tonight Show. He held him back, and he made him 
this 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 um, ultimate object of desire. You know, you had to pay a price to see. He was a premium object. You weren't getting him on the Tonight Show or or whatever. He wasn't going to be on Mike Douglas back in the day. It wasn't going to happen. So, um, yeah, it, it speaks to exactly what you were saying. There was a mystique around him. Um, they reached a point where. Elvis was really strangled internally as, as, a, as an entertainer. Elvis wanted to change his act. And with Elvis, it was all about getting better. He never wanted to do those movies, those 33 ridiculous speech movies. He just gritted his teeth over it, but he was pushed into doing it because the colonel's point of view is they're making money, keep doing it. Right. Elvis wanted to be a serious, dramatic actor. He was actually offered the role... Um, in, in A Star is Born. I know there's a remake out now, but I'm talking the original. And Colonel Parker jacked the price up on Elvis so high that it could never happen because he wanted him kept to... He didn't want to lose his meal ticket. You know, He wanted Elvis kept in his place. So, you know, there's there was one time during the movie years where Elvis started to rebel and he got so pissed he uh, he was getting script after script, and they were the same script. And one time he just he'd had it. He said, "You know this this movie. I'm a speedboat racer. The last movie I was a race car driver. He, it's the same script." So he just decided he wasn't going to go to the. He was going to rebel. He wasn't going to do it anymore. So he threw his script all over the all over the living room. And I you know I know somebody was there, and I'm not going to give their name out. But um, so what happened was. Uh, the next day, Colonel Parker came up, RCA came up, the studio, the people who were in charge of the studio came up, and they had a sit-down with him. And they said, you're going to do these movies, or you're not going to do anything else. And it was made abundantly clear to him that they weren't threatening his career. Because these people were all quite connected, and they were actually threatening his life if you read between the lines. So at that moment in time, Colonel Parker takes it upon himself to expand the golden handcuffs just a little more, tighten them up a little more. It was always been 25% was the Colonel's cut and 75% was Elvis Presley's cut. And all the business um, expenses came out of Elvis's cut. Well, the Colonel, after they make this announcement... He says, well, we're going to be 50-50 partners, and I'm going to backdate it to the beginning of the year. Wow. And there's nothing Elvis could do. I mean, that's first of all, that's not even anywhere close to a standard contract anyway. And then on top of that, with the amount of money that Elvis was making, you know, you're talking about uh, just a, a substantial figure. I mean, we're talking, I, I couldn't even do the math to try to make it uh, an equivalent to today's kind of money, but just just that kind of deal alone the original deal should have had the colonel set for life well he certainly had no fiduciary responsibility to elvis presley um but the colonel had his own personal demons he liked to book elvis in vegas uh, because well he he had the huge record the record for selling out crowds but colonel parker loved the gambling tables so he was in his glory Everything that he made, he gambled. Um, you know, at a time when Larry Geller is one of Elvis Presley's closest friends. It was his hairdresser. 
Um, and uh, he was a really good friend to Elvis. And not all the guys were. Larry Geller was just a peach of a guy, good guy. And he was walking through the casino. And he sees the, all of these people surrounding this one person. And we're in Vegas, of course. And, you know, he walks by. He's going up to see Elvis. And he walks by. And he happens to chalk over. And he looks, and it's Colonel Parker. And he's playing the sucker's game of all time, the Wheel of Fortune. And he's spinning this wheel, okay? And he's got stacks and stacks of chips. And it's all velvet roped off. And everyone's watching. And... He spies Larry, and Larry goes over and sits down, and he said, Larry, sit down. Give me some luck. I need some luck here. And according to Larry, um, in a time when the average income in America was $5,800 a year, Colonel was up all night and lost $1.5 million. Wow. I mean, this guy had a problem. So now we can understand why it was all about the money for the Colonel. He didn't care about Elvis or what Elvis wanted. Um, there were times when Elvis would do bad shows intentionally, just to not the old man, just to get his point across. And Colonel Parker would be, hey, it's selling, keep doing it. So the last movie he did was 1969, and it was a change of habit, which was a double pun because it was a change from the movies he was doing. And you know, I don't know if anybody got the double pun on that one, but... Um, after that, he goes. He was right into um, the the singer special, the '68 comeback, um, which one was released just before the other. That was really close to the release. So we have '68, 1968. Elvis's career is completely tarnished because of these ridiculous beachy movies. Who all made made money, by the way. It wasn't one that lost money, but they punished his brand pretty bad, especially if you look at him today. And the 68 Comeback Special, the Colonel had wanted him to sing Christmas songs and wear a sweater like Perry Como. Mm -hmm. And the producer for the show, uh, Steve Bender, said, oh, no, 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 no. No, your, your career's in the toilet. You need to go back to your roots. And that's why we have the black leather thing. So a little resurrection of his career. Um, the two-part friends, Steve Bender and Elvis Presley, and they exchanged phone numbers. Every time Steve Bender went to call Elvis Presley, the colonel intercepted it. Hmm. Elvis went to his grave never hearing from Steve Bender again. So this is the type of control that Colonel Parker had, and he had the people behind him in which to pull this off. And so here we have... I'm I, sorry. I was going to say, that could have changed the, the course of Elvis's career in a completely different trajectory working with Bender because like Bender brought him back <laughs> to that that badass approach. And I mean, if you watch that 68 comeback special, it shows all different facets of his personality. It, you know, he's, he's warm with the audience. It shows his charisma. It, it kind of reignites him as being the sex symbol again. I mean, as much as, you know, the movies, they always try to portray him as, you know, the handsome leading man, but he didn't have that same charisma that he had had prior to, to joining the army. So this could have been a completely different Elvis had Bender had access to him. They had some terrible rows, Elvis and the Colonel, right around that period, because there started to be a struggle for Elvis's soul. You know, what am I going to be? And um, it, it got to the point where the Colonel had moved to Palm Springs, and he was more interested in hanging out with his, his mob friends 
than he was looking out for Elvis in his career. And it also reached a point because uh, the Colonel was older than Elvis. He started to lose his touch and lose his, uh, you know, the psychedelic uh, thing in music was not necessarily Colonel Parker's thing. And that was right on, you know, on the edge of the 68 special. I mean, the music industry had evolved past the Colonel. There was a point where Colonel became a little lost in what was going on. Steve Bender would have been perfect. They got along really well. Um, he understood Elvis. Elvis trusted him. And there were lots of reasons why that, that split had to happen. But Elvis was probably, was probably more famous than anybody who's ever been famous. And he was probably more exploited than anybody who's ever been exploited. Um, my book is written, but I mean, I'm an Elvis fan, so it's written pro Elvis. Um, it also shows the side of him that was greatly exploited. And, um, it's, it, it's hard to talk about how, how badly, you know, decades after, you know, the, what leaked out afterwards, it, it's hard to talk about how, um, unhappy he was made by some people around him. Well, absolutely. I, I do want to just uh, pause for one second, Steve, because we do have to... Uh, I just got to fire off the legal ID. We'll do that, and we'll get right back into the conversation. And uh, we are talking with Steve Ubaney. He is the author of the book, Who Murdered Elvis? And you can check out the entire Who Murdered series at whomurderedbooks.com. So, Steve, we're talking about Elvis and, and about his... Uh, just what was going on in, in his life and in his career with the struggles uh, with Colonel Tom Parker... But this is a guy that you would think wouldn't want to have any... I mean, this, Elvis was his cash cow. He wouldn't want anything to happen to him. He wouldn't have been involved in, in any attempt to murder the king. There reached a point where Elvis Presley was worth more money dead than alive. Wow. And that happened right around 1976 when Elvis filed... Or was really close to filing bankruptcy. So what happened was... Um, Priscilla had taken Elvis to court a second time and reopened her divorce. I don't exactly know the legalities of how that's possible, but I just know that it happened, okay? Um, it's kind of like rat poison. I don't know why it kills me. I just know that it does, okay? I don't know right. how it was possible. It just happened. So um, he needed to come up with, this was 1974, I believe. He needed to come up with some cash quick. So Colonel Parker talked him into selling all of the musical rights to all of his songs. So he'd have no more royalties coming in. So he he did it. Colonel Parker got his, his cash cow. Priscilla got her money. Elvis got the shaft. Elvis was the number one taxpayer in the state of Tennessee. He had no tax shelters. So the only money that he had coming in was from doing tour after tour after tour at breakneck speed. And... And it wasn't working. <laughs> 1976, you know, Elvis was teetering. A lot of people didn't have any idea he was teetering on bankruptcy because he was being financially mismanaged. So in steps his father to take charge of his um, to take charge of his finances, and he decides they're going to sell a plane. There was a, a, a one of his first planes that he wanted to sell, and it was $899,000. And they sell the. He goes to sell this uh, this plane called the Jetstar, which he nicknamed the Hound Dog Two. Ended up being sold to uh, a guy Frederick Peter Pro, 
and he was an international mobster who conned them out of the plane. They said, look, I'll buy the plane, but, you know, you have to refinance the plane and do the, the, um, and do the upgrades. And then, you know, I'll pay you for the upgrades and the plane and I'll just pay you every month. So the guy gets the plane, uh, Elvis and, and company get blank checks. I mean, you know, bouncing checks. Mm-hmm. So this started a huge FBI sting which Elvis and his father knew about, which brings me back to the, the quote, oh, my God, they've murdered my son. What the, Vernon knew things that no one else had known. So Elvis's life starts to be threatened. And he, his FBI file is quite telling. Um, he needs to start carrying guns. Bars go up on the windows at Graceland. Graceland becomes a compound. Kind of mirrors Michael Corleone's Godfather too. You have walls, gates, guards, you know, closed circuit TV cameras. Um, you know, this is somewhat less of a house. This is somewhat more of a of a fortress here at this point um, because he's embroiled in some things. So he decides that he needs to get. He was also um, very interested in law enforcement. He wanted to. He had badges from everyone, and he collected them. It was one of the things he did. But he wanted the federal badge so he could carry guns in all states that he went. So he needed to protect himself because now there's starting to be some real threats. So he ends up going to see Nixon. Nixon gives him the federal narcotics badge. And one of the things that... um, Richard Nixon asked Elvis to do. Elvis was playing two months a year through his performance contract at the International Hotel which in Vegas, which later became the Las Vegas Hilton. And he asked him to, you know, of course, Vegas is steeped in mob. If, if you remember the, the movie Casino, although fictional, it's there's parts of it who are that are factual. This is how in-depth the mob was in Vegas at the time. So he they asked Elvis to hide FBI agents and pose them as band members in Elvis's band so they can investigate the mob. And they were all caught. And how, how we came up with this, as I said, there were 30 years of information before I got into this. And uh, Maria Columbus in 1990, she was an Elvis Presley investigator, and she discovered this. She was going to the trophy room at Graceland, and she saw on the wall a letter from the federal government thanking Elvis Presley for his involvement and help and whatever. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was it was pretty couched uh, wording. So she gets a hold of the federal government and wants to know what, what, what it was about. The letter that they gave her spilled the beans as to what was going on. So they were all caught, and Elvis died mysteriously, um... You know, shortly before he was going to turn state's evidence against the mob. So that's a that's a motive right there, if there ever was one. Well, in my book, in all of my books, I take uh, I, I screen the suspects and I take them through motive, means, and opportunity, and I come up with and there's a lot that goes into these books, um, and I come up with you know the, the one or two people who only could have done this, so. You know, it's, it's very interesting, uh, the dichotomy of what's going on. 
So you're not going to mix the mob influence with Elvis Presley's law enforcement and have it on well. Also, the government's not necessarily thrilled with Elvis Presley at this time either. They give him his federal narcotics badge, which, you know, when people give, give Elvis his ba- badges, they're kind of honorary. Right. You know, it's like, it's like getting the key to the city. Well, Elvis took it really seriously. So there was, he was abusing his authority with these badges. So, um. Was he, was, was he making uh, drug busts and, you know, well, keeping the product? Is that? There was, there was, uh, there was one instance where Elvis had a key. I'll get back to the drug thing in a second. Okay, that's we have to earmark that because that's good. I have to put down the legend and lore to really get into the to the investigation part of it. Absolutely. Elvis accused someone of stealing one one of his favorite gold pinky rings, and the guy was at the airport and he was flying out on the plane. So Elvis discovers all this and. He's running down the runway, flashing a federal badge. The plane stops. Elvis gets on the plane and roughs the guy up in his seat. The man sues the the uh, airline. I mean, this this is just a mess. This is a mess. So Elvis is running around. So now we have the mob and the FBI. Neither one are happy with what Elvis is doing. And, you know, you're not going to piss these people off and win the game. It's just not going to happen. So um, as far as Elvis Presley's death is concerned, um, as I said, I became really good friends with Dan Warlick, who um, was the investigator who went through Graceland uh, and, and investigated the rooms, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, because the death scene was mysteriously sanitized. Um, in very telling way, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, they get this, this, they find the body, who, the body, he had been dead for hours, absolutely hours. Um, the two EMTs, uh, Ulysses Jones and Charles Crosby find this, this body face down and they think, they flip him over and they think he's a colored man. They're shocked to find out who this is. I mean, he had been dead for hours upon hours. Face down, of course, when your heart stops beating, your blood stops circulating, and your blood starts to pool at the lowest level. It's called liver mortis. And, you know, Elvis was on his face. So, you know, he's he's in a rough way here. So they take this corpse um, down the stairs. They put him in the hearse, or I'm sorry, in the ambulance. And they're met by Dr. Nicopolis, Elvis's doctor, who is shocked, beyond shocked. Elvis just had two head-to-toe physicals in the weeks before, one for uh, his insurance company, his personal insurance company, and the other one for Lloyd's of London. He passed both with flying colors. So how is this guy transformed into this bloated blue, brown, black corpse? What the hell is going on here? So... Dr. Nicopolis hops on the ambulance and starts to do CPR on this corpse, which is, it just boggles my mind how they, the heroic and horrific attempts they, they did to save this person's life. Right. They go to Baptist Hospital. They get him in there. They, oh, I'm not even going to go into what, what they did to him to try and save his life. Um, 
one of the things they did was to try and open an airway. They smashed his front teeth out and put, you know, oxygen down there. His teeth were clenched closed. Um, it must have been just horrific. I mean, actually, I'm glad I wasn't there. Uh, so they start the autopsy, and they remember what one of the Memphis Mafia members say when they found him. We think he OD'd. Well, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they're looking to pound in this nail. So they uh, they search all over um, the body for any sort of injection or anything. Nothing. So they go to Graceland, and they're going through the rooms and walk right into it, and Elvis Presley's office is, is a syringe. And it was... Uh, it was a. It wasn't like a syringe like you would find in a doctor's office. It was like a caulking gun type, where you'd put the tube in. Oh yeah. And it was. It was like a cartridge type of syringe, no needle. So they find that they're going through, and the bed's made up. Automatically, the death scene's been sanitized. And I'm going to come back to the autopsy in just a second because it's important. So they they're examining the the bedroom. Another drug syringe the hell is going on here? Another one, same thing. Cartridge type, no needle. Again, I know the guy who found him and bagged him for evidence. Um, going to the bathroom, so he'd be hanging right now to go into Elvis's bathroom, which was kind of his favorite room in the house. It was his reading area. It was, um, he had a black leather barber's chair that he used to kick back and read, and this was his fortress of solitude, okay? Mm-hmm. Um there's a there's a black leather doctor's bag on the on the counter on the vanity. Nothing in it, not even a baby aspirin. So they start to look around, and they see on the shag carpeting, about seven feet away from the toilet, a wet spot, where apparently Elvis had aspirated when he died. Elvis was never on the toilet when he died. You're going to fall off the toilet. You're going to fall three, four feet, maybe five if you crawl. You're not falling seven feet. Right. We can have the, we can thank the same person for that story um, as them saying that they found him dead in bed because it was the same person. So we have all of this conflicting evidence. We go back to snap back to the autopsy now. Okay, drug syringes, you know. Let's see if he was injecting anything. So they fine-tooth comb this guy's body. Can't find an injection mark on him. So what the hell are the drug syringes doing there? So Elvis Presley was allergic to codeine, and he almost died of anaphylaxic shock. In, it, was in, it was in the late 60s. Uh, someone had done some dental work, and they gave him some codeine. Had no idea he was allergic to it. And his throat almost swelled completely closed and you know scared the hell out of him so elvis started to request uh dr nicopolis that he provide him with the physician's desk reference to drugs this is how elvis started to he knew more about drugs than a pharmacist you show him a pill he'll show you what to take it with you know (laughs) what food to take it with what time to take it with and the guy was really really smart when it came to this so they go to the autopsy. The first thing they do, now they're looking for drugs, right? They're going to pound in that nail because all I have is a hammer. 
they dissect Elvis Presley's vocal cords. So they take his larynx out, and they look at it. There's no signs of swelling. And Dan is looking at this. It's, it's amazing. I get a chance to meet the man who died a couple months ago, actually. I get a chance to meet the man who held Elvis Presley's voice box. I mean, this is just incredible. Wow. So he's looking at this extraordinarily well-developed organ, and um, there's no sign of anaphylaxis in this thing at all. There's no swelling. There's no nothing. So they run toxicology reports because they got a pound in that nail, right? So University of Tennessee does one, um, and they come back with their, with four depressants in Elvis Presley's system, which makes sense because he has a hard time going to sleep, and they give him downers to get him to go to bed. So they're called attack packs, and they're de- they're like sleeping pills, basically. And there are different levels of drugs. There's trace, there's therapeutic, which is what a doctor would prescribe you. Um, there's toxic, which would make you sick. And then there's lethal. Of course, we all know what lethal means. Mm-hmm. The four things that were found in Elvis Presley's body were between trace and therapeutic. So they're not satisfied with that because there's no answer there. So they go to another laboratory in in uh, across, across town in Memphis. Same results. Okay, now we have another problem. Why is this guy dead? So they start to section his heart. And uh, they cut Elvis Presley's heart. Um, it's almost like a meat slicer. They do it every quarter inch. And they take these uh, these little pieces of sectioned heart and they look at them under the electron microscope. And they're hoping, they're looking through everything and all the, all the arteries and everything, hoping to find uh, a blood clot or some sort of hemorrhaging or some sort of something that would indicate that there was some problem here. They look through every single slice on Elvis Presley's heart. No clotting, no nothing. He was years away from heart disease. One thing they did say is that he did have a, in, in Dan Warlick's term, because he was, <laughs> He was a Tennessean. He had a big old flabby heart. <laughs> so Elvis's heart was a little oversized, but all of his organs were oversized, which was really kind of bizarre. Um, so meanwhile, Dr. Harold Sexton is taking tissue samples, and he's putting them in uh, Tupperware containers, packed in dry ice, shipping them to bioscience laboratories in California, which was at that time the most high-tech laboratory in the country for something like this. And said, you know, look, it's, uh, it's, it's a priority thing. Didn't mention the name, but they said, you know, look, we need you to get this thing done and get this done immediately. So that's being done. Is Jerry, Free- Jerry T. Francisco is in charge of the autopsy. And he is, side note, He's the same medical examiner who botched Martin Luther King's autopsy nine years earlier. Mm. So badly they couldn't tell where the bullet was coming from. So he had promised earlier that uh, they were going to give the cause of death, you know, it, I think it was 8 o'clock. So here he, he goes out in, in the presence of his superior, which was Eric Muirhead, uh, who's in charge of the hospital, and he says that Elvis Presley died of cardiac arrhythmia. 
Well, I'm no doctor, okay? But if you're going to have AFib, atrial fibrillation, cardiac arrhythmia, you have to have a beating heart to diagnose a bad heartbeat. Right. Since he, right. since he didn't, you know, we're a lot smarter today than we were then on some things. Since he never saw or examined Elvis Presley's heart, it's completely bogus. It's impossible for him to give that as a cause of death. It's, it's, it's impossible. So everyone just kind of like accepted that and, okay, well, we're going to go away. It was a natural death. That's what he said. Telling more stories than Mother Goose. Now, segue to uh, Marilyn Monroe, whose uh, coroner took 12 days to come back with her cause of death. This guy comes back in a couple hours. It's just, it's incredible. It's, and he was probably, if you look at his credentials, he was probably the most qualified person in the state of Tennessee to do this autopsy. But, I mean, if you look at Elvis and, and the way that he looked in those later years, uh, in the years leading up to his death, you can kind of buy that he would have a heart attack. I mean, compared to the svelte Elvis that people remembered, you know, as I'm just thinking back to when there was the young Elvis versus the old Elvis stamp debate. You know, you can see a marked difference between the way that he looked in 1977 and the way that he looked in 1957. Well, and there's a reason for this, and it wasn't because he was, again, legend and lore. He wasn't eating deep-fried bacon and banana Sandwiches, okay? Not This is, wasn't the problem. Elvis had a birth defect. He had a twisted colon. And you combine a twisted colon with downers, and you've got a problem. So Elvis probably, the re- he looks so, the reason he looks so pasty and odd and bloated is because he hadn't had a bowel movement in a month and a half. They discovered this at the autopsy. They, um, you know, they do this thing at the autopsy where they take a flat build pair of surgical scissors and they cut up your megacolon and just to see what's in there. And this is something that no one wants to do, obviously, but it's part of the autopsy procedure. With Elvis, they discovered clay-like fecal matter that they couldn't even cut through. It was impossible for him to be on the toilet. There's no way. It would have been impossible. So this explains the odd bloat. He was actually going to have an operation, actually, at the end of that tour leg to um, to, to take care of that um, because that twisted colon caused him a hell of a lot of problems all through his life. And so, you know, that's that was part of the reason why he looked so bloated and so sickly. Um, it, it wasn't for um, the reasons that we, you know, that we thought. So... The results come back from bioscience laboratories, and I know I'm jumping around, but I'm doing my best to tell the no, no. story, that there's this huge cocktail of drugs in Elvis Presley, and there's codeine at 11 times the lethal level. But now we have a problem. If there's no codeine in the body, you can't have codeine in the toxicology report. So they take this ridiculous and fabricated toxicology report to my friend, Dr. Cyril Wecht, who they put put a camera on him, they being uh, Geraldo Rivera, um, 1979, ABC's 2020, they on camera, and he announces to the world how incredible it is that anyone would be on all of these drugs. So my question is, where the hell did that come from? We know there's no anaphylaxis in the body. 
How the hell did it show up in one and only one of the three toxicology reports? If it's not in the body, it can't be in the toxicology report. And if you go that far, you've got a conspiracy on your hands. A conspiracy meaning, by the illegal term, you know, two people joined together to perform an act. Right. Somebody decided that that had to be in there to, to start this cover-up of whatever the truth was. So you start to notice certain parallels with other deaths. I'll come back to that. Let's earmark that and come back to it. Um, again, I'm jumping around, but I, I'm doing this. I'm trying to keep it in sequential order. Okay. So Dan Warlick leaves, um, takes all of the evidence that he tried to show, um, all of the photographs, all of the sketches, all of the information that he got from the upstairs of Grace and that he tried to show Jerry Francisco um, that we have a much bigger story here. Jerry Francisco, again, the person uh, supervising the autopsy, brushed it off, didn't want to hear about it. So he takes this home, leaves it on the front seat of his car, goes, locks his car, goes up to his apartment, goes to bed, comes down in the morning. His car has been burglarized. The only thing it's missing is the evidence from Graceland. The plot is starting to thicken. So... Let's 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 fast forward to um, 1979. 2020 is almost off the air in 79. ABC's 2020. They're got they're getting no ratings. They're barely afloat. And I think personally, what happened? Just my guess, my opinion. I think that they sensationalized that autopsy report with all of those drugs just to just to get the ratings to keep them on the air. Hmm. And Geraldo Rivera, who I like, by the way. I don't know him, but I do respect him. I think he does a good job. They had this big, um, it was a TV series, and they did several parts on the death of Elvis Presley. And they said that all of these drugs had been prescribed to Elvis Presley, and they showed this mountain of drugs. It was like 4,000 pills or something. And, of course, they poured them all out for dramatic effect. Well, prescribing something to someone... And having them take them is two different things. Right. Elvis, like I said, was having financial problems. And he, his father, had seized control of his finances, and it was pretty, it was pretty heavy duty. I mean, he got to the point where he had to let three of his bodyguards go because they just couldn't afford them all. So, um, Elvis, they were, all the people in the Memphis Mafia were taking pills. It was just a little pill cult. Okay, so Elvis has his own personal doctor who's on his payroll, and he said, you know, look, I don't want to get an earful from my dad for buying, you know, all of these, uh, you know, all of these people, uh, you know, these drugs. Just prescribe them all under my name, and they'll think it's for me, and we'll be done with it. So Elvis, here is Dr. Nicopolis breaking the law, basically, for his friend prescribing all of these pills for Elvis, and it's a candy bowl in the middle of the room. Everybody would just come through and take whatever they wanted. They weren't all being taken by Elvis, and they said, according to one of the members of the Memphis Mafia, who's no longer with us, and I'm not going to bring his name into it, he said if there was one or two left, they might give them to Elvis, but the rest went to the guys, because the guys were living the same lifestyle. Right, yeah. So, drug addict... He was definitely a veteran pill popper. He knew what he was doing with them. 
not so much as what everyone thinks. Uh, heart attack, impossible. Um, lifestyle, impossible for a death like that. Um, it's, so here we have, you know, lots of different things going on. 1977, Colonel Parker now owes the mob for his gambling debt $32 million. Now they're starting to fear for their lives. Elvis put bars on the windows. Colonel Parker turned to elaborate uh, alarm systems. And things are starting to ratchet up. So here we have Elvis caught in the middle of lots and lots of things. He's pissed off the mob. He's pissed off... Um, He's pissed off the federal government. Um, and the colonel, he's starting to cancel dates because, again, he has the colon problem. Hard to perform when you're in that situation. He's starting to cancel tours. That means no money for uh, the mob, no money for Colonel Parker. Big problem. Okay. The ear note here. Um, if the earmark this, the 50-50 split, um, back earlier on, the colonel was still getting 25%. The other 25% he was giving directly to the mob. Oh. It was called tribute. They used to do that back in the day. You know, this is an old Italian thing. You do tribute for the mob. That's the way it is. You and that was just their... tribute. That wasn't even covering the debts. That was just their cut for what they helped do to make him what he was. Exactly. Exactly. So now here we have the mob as a silent partner that didn't come out until decades and decades after both of them were dead. So you have a bunch of beehive of bad activity around Elvis Presley. So it reached a point where the colonel tried to sell his um, tried to sell his contract, and it was leaked to uh a source that came out in the Nashville uh the Nashville Banner, which is a newspaper in Nashville. I don't even know if it's still in, in existence, but it was at the time. And he's unsuccessful. There was a couple people interested in it at the time. Um and he's unsuccessful in selling his contract. So there's an awful lot going on. So Elvis at the time, his father is getting a divorce. And his three step brothers were part of his crew. Elvis is pushing, Elvis's father is pushing him into changing his will, writing people out of the will. So at the time Elvis Presley dies, there's two wills. One that's been probated and one that hasn't been. At the time he dies, there are two death certificates that contradict each other. We've got a mess on our hands. And I'll tell you what, um, this is a book everybody should read. It's 250 pages, I think, and I cut right to the chase, and it'll it'll glue you. There, there's a lot of information, um, so don't go to Amazon and buy this book. You're going to spend five bucks too much, and you know what? Amazon doesn't need your five damn dollars. They're doing just fine. Okay, um, keep the money in your pocket. Go to whomurderedbooks.com. Buy it off my website. I'm a little back ordered. My publisher's having problems keeping up with the orders, but I'll get you one. I promise. So. Uh, it's a book that everyone everyone really should read. Um, I can't do it justice in the conversation that I'm having. Um, but Elvis is alive. I have to go here. I have to go here. Um, the greater majority of this is, is ridiculous uh, for a couple of reasons. Well, one, um, it's wishful thinking more than anything. 
Yeah, I think so, because, you know, four years goes by quick, and the last time anybody saw Elvis was in 73 when he was doing the Aloha from Hawaii, and he looked extremely fit, and, you know, and the guy looks like an Adonis up there, you know, with his white eagle thing, and then all of a sudden he's dead, so it was very, very hard for people to uh, people to come to grips with, and I wish he was alive. I, you know, I mean, I have no idea how much I wish the man was alive. It's not, but uh, it's, I met the man who took his brain out, okay, the man is quite dead. Um, Susanna Lee, in my conversation with her, she blew my mind on something. She said that Elvis had two doubles um, who were surgically altered to look like him. And they were using them in the movies so they could continue to film and Elvis could go do the, lay down the soundtracks in the studio out there. Hmm. So... Susanna told me that there were the first four scenes that she had with Elvis isn't even Elvis. And it's shocking because she pointed pictures out that some of the publicity photos that you would think were Elvis and they're not. So um, people are probably seeing this, these two guys who are about the same age. Um, there's that. Um, Colonel Parker also after Elvis died. He was one of the ones behind the Elvis is Alive thing because he had to keep things selling. Sure, yeah. And, so, and it's funny that you mentioned the, the doubles because in uh, putting together the promotional graphic for this show, I, I went and did a Google image search for some images of Elvis, and I saw something and I was like, whoa, that looks just like Elvis, but not quite. So I just assumed a lot of these were... Uh, you know, impersonator photos. There's, there's been so many impersonators over the years. But then I look, and these are coming from, you know, official Elvis websites and, you know, from some of the, the promotional materials associated with the movies. So it was it, it kind of stuck out to me just the other day that that's, that, that could have been a possibility. That there's, I just assumed there was some doctoring of the images. No, they didn't have that technology like they do today. Um, I mean, I'm sure they probably could do it. It would take a great effort, but... Susanna pointed out, one, and I lost her last year, too. She lost her multi-year battle with liver cancer, and she was a peach of a gal. What a sweetheart. Um, so it's one little by little, I'm losing all of my, my uh, Elvis mutual friends here. But she, um, she pointed out one photo in particular where she's got, his arms or, she's got her arms around Elvis's neck, and it's not Elvis. And you can tell it looks just like him. But his face is very U-shaped at the bottom, and Elvis's face was very triangular. So she, I, she just absolutely blew my mind. She said, "You know, that's not Elvis." And I said, "You got to be kidding me." She said, "No, that's that guy's name's John. He was one of the body doubles." So, very interesting stuff. So this Elvis is alive thing was being Colonel Parker kept that going after Elvis died to keep uh, keep raking in the money, because there was a time that he had everything, and Elvis Presley Enterprises and Graceland wasn't in the picture at that point in time. So there's that um, that's being promoted. I mean, for a while, Elvis was our new Bigfoot. You know, they have pictures of him walking. I mean, it got to be ridiculous after a while. Right. So and then you have the body doubles, of course, who would pass in a crowd for the guy. And here's the more sinister aspect. There's a trace amount of evidence of what these people are finding out there that is true. And I was in the Elvis is Alive camp until I saw the entire body of evidence in front of me. 
But when you stop to think about it, just like the drug syringes, this Elvis is Alive documentation that they're finding is planted there for them to find, just like the drug syringes, to keep, to keep people spinning their minds in a different direction. A disinformation the, campaign, yep. Absolutely, absolutely. So the drug cocktail, the mysterious drug cocktail that wasn't, set up Elvis's doctor as the patsy in the same way that the pristine bullet and the JFK assassination set, set up Oswald. And it's this spin campaign. We have, if you look at the parallels between Marilyn Monroe's death, JFK's death, Elvis Presley's death, and Sonny Liston's death, it's incredible, the parallels. Um, sanitized death scene. Marilyn Monroe's death scene was definitely staged because she had liver mortis on the wrong side of her face. Elvis's death scene was mysteriously sanitized. You have JFK, they're in the hospital in Parkland, who I met a nurse, actually, who was in there. And that's going to come up in Who Murdered JFK coming up here in you know, next year. Um, they're working on JFK, the Secret Service people are—they're cleaning the—they're cleaning the blood splatter out of the out of the limousine. It's a crime scene for Christ Almighty, and they're right. cleaning up the blood splatter. The case is the case of Sonny Liston, almost identical to Elvis, nude from the waist down, foaming at the mouth, drug stuff planted all over the place, syringes. Very interesting. Um, Pants down around the ankles. That's what the mob does to tough guys when they when they get them. Hmm. You were supposed you were supposed to do something, and you know you want to be a tough guy, and you wanna you wanna go against our wishes. This is what we do. The same thing in Mussolini, by the way. <laughs> well, I think John, my my co-host tonight, has a question for you. So the question that I have is the guy Parker who managed him. Did he have any way after? He passed away after Presley passed away. Did he take over, say, Graceland, or did how? What happened to him after? Like, did he run any part of it or anything like that? Great question, John. In 1974, Colonel Parker started Boxcar Enterprises, which was kind of the precursor to Elvis Presley Enterprises, even though they were totally separate and they're no friend of each other. That I can tell you, um, where. Colonel Parker could sell his image and likeness and posters and whatever. And, uh, of course, Elvis got a cut of it. Like all of Colonel Parker's deals with Elvis, it was grossly unfair to Elvis. Um, and so after his death, you know, the colonel went crazy selling photos and posters. And, you know, of course, you have to wonder... By 1977 technology, how all of those records were pressed and ready to go when Elvis died. They had a stockpile of records like you wouldn't believe. Mm. You have to ask yourself, how did they know ahead of time what the hell was going on? So to answer your question, yes, he did have um, he did have control of his likeness and image and everything. There was a tremendous court battle in the 80s. I think it was like 1982, 1981 or 82, because Lisa Marie was supposed to be the heir of everything, and Colonel Parker was in charge of everything. So they had a gigantic legal struggle 
and um, they paid. Yeah, because I read I read somewhere that uh, Presley's father turned over and signed over everything to do with Presley to Parker. Yeah, it was a legal mess. It was a legal mess. Um, Vernon was a sick man, and he realized that you have to understand there was no Elvis Presley Enterprises. Priscilla was not in the picture yet. Vernon had no help. So he was a sick man who couldn't uh, take this on himself, and no one else was stepping up to the plate. So at the time, the only one who was in the mix who could make a go of this, because you have to realize, Graceland's damn near bankrupt in the, in the, in the, when Elvis dies and shortly after. So they're trying to remain solvent. So, you know, it was a good business decision for Vernon to do that at the time, you know, and there was a huge legal struggle that ensued. But also we're looking at a situation where, as you mentioned, you know, Elvis is worth more dead than alive, aside from all of his issues, his tax issues, everything that was going on in that regard. The re-energized name of Elvis Presley after his death, the fact that, you know, this was a guy who in the 50s and early 60s had completely taken hold of popular culture, but by the 70s, at least from my understanding, I was I was born uh, a few months after Elvis died, but from my understanding, it was just pretty much those same fans that were following Elvis in the 70s. He hadn't he hadn't reached a new audience because of the way that his career had gone. So it was when he died that all of a sudden these younger folks are, are discovering his music and and now he's become become even more of a uh, of an icon than he was when he was alive. Well, yeah, you're you're right. Um, an image doesn't tire, doesn't cancel dates. You know, so posters and photos and images and things like that. I mean, that's where the money is. So as far as the fan base is concerned, you know, you don't know what you have until it's gone. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the fifties and sixties, you're right. You know, he was he was doing his thing and knocking them dead and getting new fans. The problem with Elvis in the seventies and the mid seventies is music had taken a different turn. We were in the disco days now. Elvis's music was not disco, <laughs> um, so I think that he was in the process in '76 and '77, March of '77, of getting his next thing in order. Um, Moody Blue had just come out and was selling great guns, so he still had a strong fan base. But he was he was uh, his he was getting older, and his fans were getting older with him. Mm-hmm. So the love affair between Elvis and his fans. Um, you know, continued. He did have younger fans involved as well because, you know, the mothers who were in love with this guy, you know, got their daughters into the act and so forth. So um, he was popular. He wasn't as popular as the rock and roll rebel that he was in the 50s, for sure. He wasn't cutting edge at that point. You know, they weren't, the churches weren't burning his records anymore. You know? well, um, it was yeah, a different he was, thing. He was, uh, he was kind of the safer act at that point. You know, by by that point... Uh, you know, he he had done the the gospel work, and I think he was kind of looked at more. And again, this is just my, you know, outside looking in. But I think he was, you know, he he was part of the American fabric by that point. Yeah, it was tough. He was he was really baked in the cake in Americana at that point. His true musical love was gospel. A lot of people don't. He never even liked rock and roll. It was kind of funny. He uh, how 
he was discovered. I mean, he walked into Sun Records to do a recording for his mother. And he was a real student of music. You know, I mean, B.B. King and some of the other people who were playing on Beale Street in Memphis, which is right around the corner from where he lived. Um, he was not, he was extraordinarily poor and they lived in the projects. And so it was a short walk to Beale Street. And he loved that, the, the, from Tupelo, he had the musical gospel background. And then of course he got into the, uh, the colored rhythm and blues and he got to be friends with, most of these people, um, B.B. King and Arthur Crudup, and, you know, he used to, he was too young to go into the clubs and hear him play, so he used to hang out outside and, and listen to him, and he mixed this musical style that was, it was just bizarre how, how he put all this together. Again, he was, he was a pretty smart guy. So when he goes in to do this music for his mother, he was, he was gonna record this, uh, this song for his mother, Marion Kiesker, who was the secretary to Sam Phillips at uh, Sun Records, heard it and knew exactly what he was. Sam Phillips and Sun Records was trying to find someone. He was trying to promote that Memphis sound. But at the time, you have to remember, artists of color were not getting on record. So here's Elvis, who's this white kid who sounds black, who can mix it all together. And now he's marketable. So it, it's very it's very interesting. It happened, but to, the whole thing happened by accident. They the first recording session was uh, he got Elvis with the Jordanaires, and they're they're trying to get him to sing these sta- staple country songs that everyone sang, and it was it was misery. It wasn't going well at all, and it was late. It was in July. I think it was July sixth. And it's been session after session after session. You know, the band, the band is not familiar with Elvis. Um, Elvis is not familiar with the band, and they were just having a hell of a time. So they had taken a break, and Elvis just picked up the guitar and started goofing around, and started singing. I think it was Blue Moon of Kentucky, and he just started going crazy and hitting the guitar and singing, and all of a sudden they pop back in and said, that's exactly what we're looking for. Now start that over again, and let's get it. Let's get the take. So the whole thing happened by accident, but his his first original uh, love was always gospel music. It was, it was really it was kind of funny how it happened by accident. Well, and again, as you mentioned, uh, people can go to whomurderedbooks.com if they want to find out more about who murdered Elvis. Uh, and we, we have a taste of it here tonight. Uh, with these these mob connections, uh, but of course the case will be laid out before you in the book, and uh, and you do have another one out as well. You have who murdered FDR, and as you mentioned, there's other ones coming as well, uh, including uh, who murdered Diana, who murdered JFK, and who murdered Tesla. So it's it certainly seems like uh, you know you've had your work cut out for you with these investigations over the years. Out of all of the uh, you know all of the different cases that you have looked into. What has been the most shocking piece of evidence that you found in any of these cases? Well, that's tough. Um, boy, I don't know if I can pin it down to one. In the, in the book of in, in the FDR book, it was that. Uh, that surprised you know, just the title surprised me because I, I assumed that uh, he just gave into his illness, like like we've been told. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing what happened. And I'm not a big conspiracy person. I'm fascinated with history. I debunk history. Okay, so um, decades and decades after people die, 
you know, deathbed confessions come out, diaries are published. And uh, if you look at the symptoms um, that were published from the doctor who was taking care of FDR, it did not line up at all with the advance of polio. So what shocked me the most is that he died in the presence of two Russian spies who were there under assumed names, and nobody seemed to care. It was just it just boggled my mind. So that shocked me the most in that one. And the thing with, with Elvis is concerned, um, it was meeting Dan Warlick in you know, having a first-hand account of the autopsy and what was going on. And he had no idea that outside of the autopsy table, the evidence that suggested that Elvis was, life was in, life was in danger. Um, so it was, it was really, it was an interesting thing for sure. For sure. Um, I'd like to go back to what I was saying about the link between all of these murders. Yes, please. The link between all of these murders is every one of those people pissed off the mob and the FBI. You have Sonny Liston, who was supposed to throw a fight against Chuck Wepner. Um, Sonny Liston, it got to the point where he had the opportunity or the chance to become heavyweight champion again. And Sonny Liston was managed by the mob. They were very, very big in many things back in the day. Thank God it doesn't work like that today. But um, he was they were telling him, we've got money set on, on Chuck Wepner. You're going to take a dive. And Sonny Liston beat Chuck Wepner so bad he had to have 40 uh, stitches in his face. So here we are a week or two later. He shows up dead under very mysterious circumstances. Um, drug syringes all over his head, needles in him. Um, there were needle marks in his arm. One problem. <laughs> he was horrified of needles. His dentist couldn't even give him a shot. Hmm. So, you know, we have that. Another sanitized death scene. Then we go to Marilyn Monroe. Of course, we don't even have to go into that. And then we go to FD, we go to JFK. And all of the crazy stuff that went on there. And then, of course, we go to FBI. The same people are involved. I mean, to look at Elvis Presley's murder is a singular standalone event is like looking at one blade of grass in a lawn i mean it's 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 really incredible the how they string from one to the next to the next to the next it's it's really and i think maybe that's what shocked me the most when i started to put it together that you know my god you know look, look at the parallel here and look at the parallel there it was really uh, it was really interesting it was uh, that really was an eye popper for sure well, uh, we certainly look forward to having you come back uh, in the future to talk about uh, who murdered JFK when that comes out or any of these other titles that are forthcoming for sure. Uh, thank you, Steve, for joining us tonight and for kind of enlightening us a little bit in some of these. You know, as I said at the beginning of the show, before we had you on the air, you know, sometimes there's just enough of that urban legend story that comes out that that is what becomes accepted. And so it takes a lot to be able to challenge that and challenge that mindset in people. But uh, certainly I can't wait to read the book. And if anybody else wants to pick up a copy, whomurderedbooks.com is the place to get them. And as you said, Steve, they're, they're a little bit back-ordered, but you guys are getting them out there as quick as you can. Yeah, they're so back-ordered. I'm sorry I couldn't even get you one. <laughs> well, that, that's, uh, I, I like yeah, having just the conversation and, and, and learning more about it and whetting my appetite to find out more. You know, I'll tell you what I'll, I'm about. I'm having problems trying to find a publisher that can keep up with me. 
because they they can't pr- they can't print these things fast enough. So if anybody out there has publishing links or contacts, bring them on because I've got to do something with this. this. is insane, but I'll get you a book. I promise. And that's that's the cheapest way to to get a book is go to go there and. Uh, I think you'll like it. I think it's, uh, it's it makes a great gift if you like history, if you're in conspiracy or cold case. I think you'll really enjoy the books. All right. Well, again, thank you for joining us. I'll send you an email with some uh, some publishing ideas too uh, to help you out a little bit, and uh, and we look forward to talking with you again down the line. I can't wait. I had a blast. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you, and have a great night. You take care. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Ubaney has left the building. You knew I had to, <laughs> but uh, what a what a fascinating discussion, and uh, and absolutely, uh, I recommend picking up the book, and and uh, we'll we'll be able to have him back on too as well uh, when the other books come out. We do want to put out a special shout out before we go off the air tonight to Detloff, which is the band that was featured prior to the show. Their song "Nerve." They're out of Pennsylvania. They were nice enough to uh, let us use that song. And you can check them out at detloff.bandcamp.com. That's D-E-T-L-O-F-F dot bandcamp.com. And, again, if you are a listener, if you're a fan of the show and you create music and you want to share some of it with us, uh, we welcome that. We would love to play it before the show airs. Uh, for those of you who jump in the chat room early before the show begins, you hear a lot of this music and wonder, like, where does all this music come from? It's it's music that was brought to us by our listeners and donated for us to use. The only catch is if you have any copyrights on it, we can't use it because then YouTube will flag it and we'll get in trouble. And But we do want to help feature anybody that's, you know, we want to support indie music as, as much as we can. And also, speaking of things that we support, I went out yesterday, Matt, in my Parabox Monthly T-shirt. Did you know? I did, and uh, people were stopping me where I, you know, it's the the St. Augustine Lighthouse shirt, and people were stopping me and saying, like, have you been there? And I was like, no, no. And they said, well, how'd you get the T-shirt? Somebody bring it back to you? Did you order it online? I said, Parabox Monthly. You can get these shirts where they actually have puzzles in them that you have to figure out. And so this this lady at the supermarket was literally trying to figure out the puzzle for my shirt. And I'm like, no, 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 you have to just get the subscription, mainly because I have to get home. My ice cream's <laughs> melting. But uh, you can get them by going to paraboxmonthly.com. And using our spooky uh, sp- uh, promo code SPOOKYLIVE, you can save 10%. I was on the website the other day. I was trying to – I was I was – Checking out some of the the themes that they have, and uh, and I think I'm I think I'm going to have to sign up and, and get those Art Bell shirts. That's that's what I want to try to get the Art Bell shirts. But if you go to PowerBoxMonthly.com, use the promo code Spooky Live, you can save ten percent on your subscription to PowerBox. And and the best part about it is you don't have to make a commitment. You can go month to month. There's a three month plan. There's a six month plan, and you can cancel them at any time. So you get the first shirt. You say, hey, maybe this isn't for me. You can cancel it. No strings attached. But you're not going to want to cancel. Do, do they put snacks in the box to send them? They do not. They oh. do put clues, though, that can help you solve the puzzle. If they put gummy bears as sweet as fresh, then maybe I'd... Well, then then your shirt's just going to smell like candy. That's but, okay. Uh, which is how well my shirts will smell anyway. But uh, I highly recommend uh, picking up a Parabox t-shirt because they are soft. They are very comfortable. And, uh, and I got a lot of compliments on it, so even though my ice cream was melting. 
So that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with another look at the world of the paranormal. You can check out all of our archives at SpookySouthCoast.com or wherever you get uh, your podcasts from. Uh, we do have, we're working on having all the podcasts fixed. We're running, the problem is we're just too big. We're too big. We're too, uh, we're too advanced. The podcast service is having trouble keeping up, but we're working on that. And you can always get the videos from our YouTube channel as well. If you want to reach us at any point during the week, spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com, or you can reach out to us on Twitter at spookysc. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. Pretty much anywhere where you can find Spooky South Coast, we will be there, including if you look out your window right now. I swear. That's where Moniz is tonight, stalking all of our listeners outside their windows. <laughs> So, uh, again, we'll be back next Saturday night with a brand new show. We have some very exciting topics coming up in the coming weeks as we get into the paranormal Christmas season, the fall season, Halloween. So until next week, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for John, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular.